You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to another FDNY Pro Podcast for WNYF. Today we have traveled to the 7th Division, located in the borough of the Bronx. I am your host, Lieutenant John Paul and we are sitting down with Deputy Chief Jay Jonas and Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Chief Jonas has served the department since 1979. He is currently assigned to Division 7 and is a regular contributor to WNYF. Chief Mulry has served the department since 1996. He is assigned to Battalion 27 in the Bedford Park section of the Bronx. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. How are you? Good to see you. Very good, thank you. This is truly a pleasure to be here with you both. Uh, Collectively, you bring nearly 60 years of firefighting experience, having worked in some of the busiest neighborhoods in New York City. Today, we're going to discuss the Andrew Avenues fire. It's February in 2016. It's just after 2 a.m. Bronx dispatchers are turning out companies for smoke from the roof of 1892 Andrews Avenue. Units arrive on scene and uh, they transmit a signal for a working fire. Chief Jonas, where are you at this time? I'm still in quarters when they uh, transmitted the signal for a fire at 1892 Andrews Avenue. But it didn't sound like it was a promising event for us. It looked like we were behind. In other words, we had a delayed alarm. It was a cold night, and uh, that would also play a factor in what we were going to do that day. Can you walk me through your thought process when you're en route to a call type like this? Well, you're listening to the radio. You're trying to formulate a picture in your mind of what the fire looks like and what units are on the scene, anticipate what they might be doing. It helps if you know the topography of the, uh, the area a little bit, knowing what your cross streets are, where you think you can get other units into the block. And as we were responding in, Chief Dottie from the 19th Battalion transmitted a second alarm. So we knew we had an advanced fire even before we got there. Chief, tell me about the construction of the fire building. You described it in your article as a six-story U-shaped multiple dwelling. For our listeners that may be unfamiliar, what are some of the characteristics associated with this building type and what are some of the operational concerns from a firefighting perspective? The building was constructed after 1929 and was constructed primarily of brick and wood joists. However, it does have skeletal steel within the structure to help support the wider spans. If the steel was not in place, the effective length that a wood beam can be used is about 25 feet. So the steel allows the building owner to construct a larger building. If you look at it from the roof level, a large wing on the left side, which we would call the A wing, and it would be connected in the back, and it would be a large wing on the right side, which we would call the B wing. And that area that's connecting the two is called the throat. Every construction type has its inherent fire travel weaknesses. In this type of construction, you have combustible voids. You have voids that are created by the skeletal steel inside. You have voids that are created by shafts within the building, and that played a big role in this fire. This fire actually started around midnight, even though the alarm was transmitted little after two o'clock in the morning. The fire was started in a laundromat on the ground floor, and it was closed. The laundromat used an unused dumbwaiter shaft to exhaust the dryers. They had a metal shaft, constructed metal tube within the dumbwaiter shaft, and that's how they exhausted the dryers. And the lint collected in that shaft, and that's what ignited. It went absolutely undetected for like two hours. So it was a unique fire in that the fire did not start in any of the apartments on the top floor. 
the fire went up this shaft coming from the laundromat on the ground floor and the fire actually started in the cock loft. When ladder companies arrived on the top floor, they actually had to awaken all the occupants on the top floor. The fire marshals were able to piece this together. They got security camera footage of the laundromat and they could see smoke puffing around the steel roll down gates around midnight. So they knew that that's about the time the fire started. Size up the scene for me. What were the fire conditions when you arrived? Were apparatus positioned optimally? Were hand lines stretched? What were you dealing with? There was a lot of activity when we first pulled up on the Burnside Avenue side. Ladder 33 had their towel ladder up. I had two hose lines being stretched as we pulled up. I received the briefing from Battalion Chief Dottie. Ladder 59 had their aerial ladder placed to the roof of the A-wing. You had fire showing near the roof. You also had a heavy smoke condition coming out the windows on the top floor. Now the tower ladder was positioned in the throat of the building and I, I believe it replaced an aerial ladder in that position. This was a few minutes into the fire. I received a report from Battalion Chief Mulry that we had heavy fire in the cockloft extending towards the throat. I knew that we had to get a tower ladder into the throat. We had ladder 4-4, which is a tower ladder behind uh, ladder 5-9. So we used some personnel to lower Ladder 5-9's area ladder and place it on the B-wing, and they were able to move Tower Ladder 4-4 into the throat. Was that very time-consuming? Was there room to maneuver? It was tight. We did have just enough room to maneuver. But anytime you're moving apparatus after they're already set up, it seems like it takes forever. In reality, it probably doesn't take that long, but by the time you bed an area ladder and take up the outriggers and move it, and then you move the tower ladder in, it just, you want it done five minutes ago. <laughs> but, uh, but we were able to get it into position and uh, we did not flow water through the tower ladder, but they were in a good position to perform a vertical vent on the top floor. Okay, so Chief Jonas has assumed command of the operation. Approximately five minutes after he arrives on scene, Battalion Chief Brian Mulley arrives and reports in to the command post. Chief Mulley, can you give me a sense of the look and the feel of the operation and what is your mindset at that time? I just have to second what the chief said. We knew we had an obvious cockloft fire by the time I got there. We had gotten that report uh, responding in. I reported into the command post. He assigned me right away to the roof sector. He had access to the roof sector. There was wing stairs, I believe, in that building. We were able to get up through the B-wing, get up there pretty quick. And at that point, I think we might have had four or five saws in operation already. We had uh, first two trucks, Rescue 3 was there, and uh, they were already starting to ventilate the roof. They were, had begun their second cut by the time we got up there. And based on the size of the roof, it was definitely necessary. So you mentioned roof sector. Chief Jonas, can you briefly explain sectoring from an incident commander's perspective, and why is this practice utilized? Once the second alarm was transmitted, we went to a command channel, and now all the units under a sector report to that sector chief. So it unburdens the command post so you don't have 15, 20 units trying to call the command post. They call their sector chief, and the, the sector chief reports to the command post. So it just adds to a, a much better communication system. As you sectored the operation, you established a radio command channel. Let's talk about handy talkie communications for a minute. What is the purpose for using both a primary tactical and a primary command channel? 
The reason why we use both is that the incident commander can talk directly to the sector chiefs without much interruption. The incident commander doesn't have to gain control over the handy talking network. It could become saturated if everybody's trying to get through on the same channel. This way I could talk directly to the sector commanders and they have the opportunity to talk directly to the people under their command, under their sector. The units have a much easier time speaking to a chief to get the information transmitted and the chiefs have an easier time talking to each other. When you implemented the command channel at this operation, did the primary tactical channel communications improve? I got there fairly early in the incident, so the primary tactical channel was not overwhelmed yet. So activating the uh, command channel on arrival kept the flow of communications going. Did you have any issues with communicating on the command channel? No. I had Chief Dottie stayed on the primary tactical channel, and I was on command. And his job is to monitor primary tactical for emergency transmissions and in any sector that we don't have a chief at yet they would still be talking on the primary tactical. Okay so Chief Mulray you're assigned to the roof sector. Once you arrived at the roof what are you seeing? As I said before they had completed the initial cut and they were starting a second hole. There was heavy fire showing everywhere they were cutting so it was obvious we had an advanced cocklaw fire at that time. We had sufficient manpower at that time up there, and Squad 41 responded as a company. I believe the chief sent them there, the entire company. I remember I conferred with the squad officer, I think Lieutenant Larocco, and we talked about cutting a trench because of the volume of fire showing at all the holes. And as we did, we started, we uh, went back and forth, we picked a spot. The throat of the fire building was about 30 feet, so we knew it was going to be an extensive cut that was going to be a little time-consuming. So top-floor fires in a building this size will also require multiple hand lines on the uh, fire floor. Did you encounter any issues with also getting a hand line to the roof quickly? They were calling for uh, hand lines for sure on the top floor. At the time when we started the trench, we did ask for a hand line and we were able to get one up through the B-wing. They sent it and they sent it pretty quickly too to protect the members cutting the trench and that definitely helped. We did not end up operating the line, but having it there made a big difference. Okay, so you've mentioned a trench cut. Can you tell me what a trench cut is and can you walk me through the progressions of the roof operation? The initial uh, units concentrated on getting the vent hole cut directly over the fire area. Now in this instance anywhere they put their saw in there was fire. So uh, they made a large cut and I think when it was said and done they may have had two large holes cut on the top floor. Trench cuts are a defensive move. They're not made for vertical ventilation but we cut a trench as a defensive move to prevent fire from extending from one wing to the other to contain it to a certain wing. We got this one started. I want to say we had one leg cut. We were probably 75% through with the second leg when it became obvious fire was showing in the cuts as we were cutting. At that time, we decided to abandon that trench. We sized up the roof. We were somewhat limited. There was some type of construction going on in the roof. I think they were storing tools, so they had a little area where they had some plywood, like a small plywood shed, so it kind of limited our choice where we could cut a second trench. Ideally, we would have liked to separate it based on how quickly it seemed to us that the fire was moving. We didn't quite get our 20 feet, but we were close. And uh, again, we conferred with the office on the roof, and we started our second trench again. Is this type of roof cut done often, trench cuts? No, this is, uh, well, I shouldn't say no, but it's, uh, we drill on it a lot, you know. We, roof operations are a very popular topic for uh, our truck companies and all our members to drill on. When it comes to vertical ventilation, we don't use a trench very often. What are some trench cutting techniques? Basically what a trench is, it's approximately three feet wide, cut from one fire stop to another fire stop. 
In this instance, the fire stops with the exterior walls and the throat. Chief Jonas, hose line placement at this fire. How did it go? I got there and the, uh, the second line was in the process of being stretched. So any hose lines beyond the first two hose lines had to be stretched via utility rope. The third hose line was stretched by engine 81, backed up by engine 93. They also took with them the cockloft nozzle. And uh, so that was in play early in the operation. We did have a hose line stretch. We had Battalion Chief Joe Jordan from the Rescue Battalion put in charge of the B-Wing sector, and he called for a hose line to be stretched to the B-Wing. We accomplished that with Engine 72. So um, hose line stretching seemed to go well as long as anything beyond the second hose line was stretched via utility rope, and uh, we were able to get those lines in position fairly quickly. What would be the purpose for that, stretching a hose line via utility rope versus in through the interior stairs? Just be able to use the stairs. Once you get more than two hose lines, it's, it becomes cumbersome to climb up and down the stairs with more than two hose lines. Ultimately, about how many lines would you say were stretched at this operation? I'm thinking we had at least six because we had at least one on the roof. We had one in the B-wing. I think we had four in the A-wing. So you had mentioned a cockloft nozzle and that it was used at this fire. Cockloft nozzles is a relatively new tool. We don't have a lot of experience with it, but every time we've used it, we've had great success with it. It's carried on the division vehicles. It's also carried on the squad companies. It's an inch and three-quarter fitting with a shutoff, and it's about six foot tall, and it has opposing nozzles. You put it in the cockloft, and you're able to turn the nozzle on a swivel, and you're able to get good water penetration to the seat of the fire. You still have to open up the ceilings and expose any hidden pockets of fire, but it stops the runaway train. It stops the expanding fire from continuing to work its way throughout the cockloft. Chief, you mentioned in your article that a satellite unit was on scene. Could you tell us what a satellite unit is and what role it played at this fire? The satellite units are an offtake of the old super pumper system. They're a two-piece unit. It has a 2,000 gallons per minute pumper, and it has an additional apparatus, which is essentially a hose wagon that carries special fittings and large caliber streams on board. One of the main uses for a satellite would be to use the manifold in areas that we couldn't get enough water into a firefight. They would stretch this manifold, and it's a four and a half inch inlet with six two and a half inch outlets. So instead of units stretching off the back step of a pumper, which may be two blocks away, they can bring rolled up lengths connected to the manifold and they could operate within the building by stretching off the manifold. Chief Jonas, you transmitted additional alarms in a very timely manner at this fire. What guidelines do you have to assist you in recognizing the need for an additional alarm or manpower? Well, there's certain situations that uh, dictate that we need a second alarm immediately. And one of those is a fire on a top floor and the cockloft of, of an H-type multiple dwelling. So that's an indicator that we would have to transmit a second alarm. As I started using units, I always like to have at least an engine and a ladder in reserve. And as these units started becoming depleted, I would be proactive and calling more. I transmitted the fourth alarm knowing that it was cold and the firefighters on scene were working extremely hard. I knew that I had to get relief companies in. So I transmitted a fourth alarm at this fire as well, mostly for relief purposes. So I'm trying to 
figure out the tasks that we have to follow. I knew how many units I had on the roof. I knew how many units I had in the A wing on the top floor. I knew how many units we had in the B wing. And I was planning for contingencies in case the fire jumped the trench again and started going into the B wing. That would be a whole dis- an, an additional alarm. So it's almost like playing chess. You know, you're trying to anticipate what your next move is going to be. You don't wait for it to happen and then react to it. You try to be proactive and says, all right, what are my possible situations here and how likely is it that they're going to happen? And that's how I make decisions on transmitting additional alarms. Chief Mulry, at one point in roof operation, you pulled members off of the A wing to the B side. What did you see at that time? At that point, the roof was fully ventilated. We had more than one hole uh, cut. We had heavy fire showing at each hole. Also, the fire had been burning for a while. Like we said previously, we all assumed that the fire had gained headway before we had been there. The inverted roof started sagging in some spots, and there was nothing more to be gained there. We just decided to get our members over to the B side. We were in the process of cutting a trench, in which case we would have had to pull the members off either way. But we just decided to get ahead of it a little bit, and we pulled everybody over onto the, uh, the other side of the, the trench, just prior to them completing it. So by and large, this operation was a complete success, if you judge that in terms of lives saved or property saved. I mean, this was a big building with a lot of fire advanced upon arrival. This question is for you both, really. What would you say were game changers at this operation that led to that success? Crucial pivot points, if you will. Probably two. Getting the hose lines in place on the top floor and having the units operating on the roof aggressively open up the cockloft. Those two events changed the course of what we were going to do. Chief Mulry? Yeah, I'd second what he says. The units did a great job on the top floor. It was an expansive area for them to get in and get those ceilings down. Conditions were tough there and especially bad on the roof. We had a lot of visibility conditions and the members did a great job. They were able to make the openings and... We had a couple of problems while cutting the second trench, and they were able to overcome it. And it's a success that it didn't pass the trench, so that's the, uh, that's the reason we cut it and uh, ended up working up at this job. So overall, it sounds like roof operations went well, um, despite a few minor setbacks. Did anything stand out, or was there anything you would perhaps do differently given the opportunity? For one, due to the extensive cutting they had to do there, what happened was, while we were cutting that second trench, we started losing saws. I think we lost two. One had a, an issue, we got some wires caught in it, but they were cutting for a long time, especially with the second trench. I remember asking for another truck. I think you sent me four or six trucks because we run out of saws and we want to make sure we cut. You know, the, the blades were getting dull also. You know, it was a lot of cutting. So that's something that would stand out in my head next time for sure. You know, if I was to consider having an extensive cutting operation like that, I would definitely have a, another saw in reserve. That and uh, when we cut that first trench, I think I alluded to this before, we didn't quite have 20 feet when we started the second one because there was a construction shed. I'd consider that next time. If I were to pass my first trench, would I have enough room to start and complete a second one with a rapidly expanding fire? I'd definitely look at it that way. That might affect my decision on where to put the first trench. Chief Jonas, similar question. Anything you would improve upon as an incident commander at the next operation? No. I thought all the obstacles that we had on arrival, we took steps to overcome them. And as the fire grew in intensity, we also adjusted to it. And I can't think of anything that I would have done differently at that fire. It was very much a successful operation. Lastly, and again for you both, is there any one thing that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Keep in mind the hose stretching rules, no more than two hose lines in a stairway. 
Everything else beyond that has got to be stretched via rope. Chauffeurs of aerial apparatus don't get too committed into the firefight so that you can't return to your apparatus so we can reposition them. And that's about it. I guess what I'd say, we talk a lot about risk versus reward. There came a point when we were cutting that second trench where the, you know, this is an inverted roof, which means they have smaller structural members built up to uh, allow the roof to drain. It started to become obvious that the fire had been burning for some time. We were all under the assumption, based on the time of night, that this fire had gained headway before we even arrived. So everybody, I think, was leaning on the long side of the burn time. It became obvious the roof was fully vented at that point. There was no reason for any members to be on that side, so we pulled everybody off that side of the, uh, the roof. You could tell that the uh, inverted roof beams, the smaller roof beam members, were starting to be consumed by fire. And also, I guess, if I had to think of another thing, I'd talk about drilling. We do drill on roof operations quite a bit. Truck companies are excellent. Trenching, like we said before, is not, not an everyday operation. We drill on it, but that's what makes it successful when we do have the opportunity to do it. I think that played a part in this fire. I'd like to thank you both for your time and for sharing fire stories from the tip of the spear. It has been an honor to be here with you both. Stay safe. Uh, thank, thank you. you. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.